Reading this morning is from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, what we just read is on page 836 in the Bible that's in the rack right in front of you. Also, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have a number of these out in the hallway, uh, out in the narthex, on the black table over against the wall. Feel free to take a Bible with you when you leave today if you would like. So we're beginning a series through the Gospel of Mark. It's so exciting to start a new series in a book of the Bible. And uh, this morning... Uh, we're starting a series through the gospel according to Mark. So, who is Mark? Let's ask that question real quick. Just a little bit of introduction type stuff before we jump into the text. We actually learn a lot from Mark. Not in Mark's gospel. He doesn't really say anything about himself. There might be one clue, but we'll get to that someday down the road. But outside of Mark, you get a lot of clues actually concerning who Mark is throughout the rest of the gospel, especially in Acts chapter 12 in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and in 1 Peter chapter 5. So those three chapters, if you want to go check, you know, check them out, uh, you can. But I'll, I'll give you just a quick overview. In Acts chapter 12, we actually find out that Mark's mom owned a house in Jerusalem. And it was a place where the early church met. And after Peter, at one point, was released from prison, it says that he went to the home of Mark's mom. So Peter went there, and so there was uh, a connection already that's important between Mark and Peter that I'll get to in a second. Um, the, Acts chapter 12 also tells us that Mark left with Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, to go back to Antioch. So Saul and Barnabas had brought, they had collected all this money. There was a famine going on in Jerusalem. They brought some, you know, money to help with famine relief in Jerusalem. And when they went back to Antioch, Mark went with them. So we see that in uh, Acts chapter 12. And then Paul and Barnabas go out on this missionary journey to plant churches throughout the region. And it says that um, Mark went with them. But at some point, there was a, a breakdown in communication, a little bit of falling out. We don't know exactly what happened. But at some point, Mark left and went back to Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas went on their way. And then later, though, by the time you get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, you have Paul under house arrest in Rome. That's another important clue. Paul, under house arrest in Rome, writes a letter to Timothy and asks Timothy to send John Mark, to send Mark to him. So now, around A.D., you know, late 50s, early A.D., 60s, you've got Mark in Rome. And then the first Peter reference, Peter 
kind of cryptically referring to Rome as Babylon. He's writing to these people and he says, I have with me, or I, I send greetings to you from she who is in Babylon, referring to the church, the gathering of Christians in Rome. They send you greetings and so does my son Mark. So you've got Mark now with Peter in Rome, late 50s, early 60s AD. And that helps us make sense of something that we read from an early church father in AD 95. Papias says this, that... Um, that basically Peter spoke and Mark wrote. So what we have in Mark's gospel is essentially what Peter said. So that's confirmed. You know, just kind of within the Bible, we got this realization. Yeah, Mark is there with Peter. They're in Rome, early A.D. 60. There's beginning to be some persecution. We talked about that when we looked at First Peter a while back. And here's Mark writing down what Peter wrote. Uh, so what did he write? Well, he wrote the gospel. But as we're going to see this morning, and as we're going to see, I think, throughout our whole study of Mark, very often these words that are used in the Bible, and especially in Mark's gospel, that we're very used to thinking about what they mean, actually mean far more than what we realize. And that word gospel is one of those words. We hear the word gospel, and we, we rightly think the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world, that he died on the cross, bearing the punishment that we deserve, so that all who look to him in faith receive the forgiveness of God because Jesus paid the price for our sin, and that forgiveness and the promise of eternal life is ours entirely by grace. And that is the gospel. But as with so many words and so many ideas in the New Testament, there's a new Old Testament anchoring, or there are roots that sink deep into the Old Testament that we often overlook, and that word gospel is one of those words. In the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, that word that would be translated gospel out of the Hebrew, you read about it in Isaiah chapter 52, that word in the Old Testament also has to do with essentially the announcement that God has triumphed over evil and now reigns over everything, and that he's come to rescue his people and lead them home, lead them to the promised land. So that's Isaiah writing to people who are in the wilderness, so to speak. We're going to come back to that in a minute, too. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. And Isaiah is looking for this day, and, and from God, giving this great promise of comfort to the people that, that the gospel, the good news, is that God himself will come. And he will defeat evil, and he will reign over all, and he will rescue his people, and he will lead them back to the promised land. So in the Bible, the word gospel is totally bound up with the proclamation of the kingdom of God. It's so much bigger than the idea of personal salvation. It is that, but it's so much more than that. The gospel centers on the triumph of the king. And Mark tells us who that king is. The king is Jesus. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the royal Messiah, the son of God. Jesus is the one who came on a great rescue mission to crush evil and to deliver his people and to do so through the unlikeliest of means, his death on the cross. So Mark tells us who Jesus is. Mark tells us also what Jesus came to do. In fact, when you look at the gospel of Mark as a whole, it pretty much, like almost evenly, divides into those two topics. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, through Mark chapter 8, verse 30, all about this question of Jesus' identity. Who is he? 
And the second half of the book from Mark 8:31 through the end of chapter 16 or maybe chapter 16 verse 8, what did Jesus come to do? What's his mission? Identity and mission. That's pretty much what Mark is broken up into. But even here in these first three verses, we get a significant, not even a necessarily veiled if you understand the New Old Testament background, really a significant revelation concerning Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission. So what we're going to do this morning is kind of like in an introductory way, ask those questions. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? And in particular, how does Mark answer those questions for us in these first three verses, which forces us then to push back through kind of our just New Testament level understanding of some key concepts back into the Old Testament in order to get a feel for the fullness of the, of the beauty and the richness of the teaching that's there. And then we're going to look at John the Baptist a little bit, and we're going to ask, you know, what is, if we were those people called out of Jerusalem in the Judean countryside, hearing, Mark's, or hearing John preaching this message of repentance, what should be our response, not only in the moment, but moving forward? In other words, two questions we'll ask, have we responded to the call? And are we living as people of the way? So those two questions we'll wrap up with, but uh, for the bulk of the sermon, just looking under three simple headings, three points that have to do with identity, mission, and calling. Identity, mission, and calling. What is Jesus' identity? Who is he? What was Jesus' mission? What did he come to do? And then third, in terms of calling, what does our response to who Jesus is and what he came to do need to be. So that's where we're headed, but let's first pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning at the outset of our uh, study of this great book, we do pray that not just this morning, but over the course of the time that we're in it, that you would be with us, that by your Spirit you would be our teacher, or that you would break through the maybe the superficial concepts or the over-familiarity that we have with these great and awesome gospel truths, and that you would help us to really embrace not only the fullness of what you have done in fulfillment of Scripture, but the fullness of what you came to do and where we are headed is so much greater than we tend to imagine. And so I pray that by your Spirit, through your Word, you would enlarge our vision for what it means to be people on the way. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first... Jesus' identity, and as I said, that's really the, chi- the theme of chapters 1 through 8. Chapters 1 through 8 is all about Jesus and his identity. And when you read chapters 1 through 8, you're going to realize nearly everybody gets it wrong. It's one of the beautiful things of the first eight chapters of Mark. Nearly everybody gets it wrong. The crowd that flocks to hear Jesus, they see him as a healer, and they see him as a great teacher. Uh, the Pharisees see him as a threat to their power. Jesus' family is a little concerned that he's, you know, crazy, right? The only, you know, beings, if you will, that get it right in the first eight chapters up until the very end of the first section, chapter 8, verse 30, are the demons. They get it right. They recognize who this is, and Jesus silences them. And, you know, it's not surprising that people don't see it because Jesus is Basically, a nobody coming from a nowhere place where nothing good was ever thought to come. 
I mean, he didn't have any kind of theological pedigree. He wasn't trained under some rabbi. He was born into poverty. He was born in a manger, not a palace. Um, he, he came from a city. You know, could anything good come from Galilee? <laughs> I mean, that was, that was the question. And this is where Jesus came from. And so his identity was veiled, not just because people made presumptions concerning who he was, but also because Jesus made sure that, in a sense, it was veiled. The, the, pro, the, uh, the parables that we'll look at are ways in which Jesus spoke that only those who had ears to hear would hear. And so it's not until the midpoint of chapter 8, Jesus takes his disciples on a little retreat. Those are always fun. And says to them, who do people say that I am? And they respond, oh, well, some say that you are, you know, Elijah. You're like the Elijah that is to come. And some say you're John the Baptist because John the Baptist was dead by that point in Mark chapter 8. And others, you know, they say that you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Finally, you know, this climactic moment at the end of, you know, 8, eight verse 30, we finally get somebody getting it right. Peter, you are the Christ. And that ends the first half of the book concerning Jesus' identity. And then from that point on, from the very next verse, we get to hear about Jesus' mission. Jesus began to plainly teach them that he must suffer many things, that he must die, and then he will rise. So from that point on, it's very clearly about his mission. In fact, the bulk of the rest of the book takes place in the last week of Jesus' life uh, in, in Jerusalem. So second half about his mission. So that's kind of the overview of the book. What do we see right here concerning Jesus' identity in these first, this first verse? And we get a lot. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And each of those titles concerning who he is, including his name, Jesus, is significant. So his name, Jesus. Jesus, of course, uh, the word that is from the uh, Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And it was Jesus' given name. But it wasn't just given in the sense that Joseph and Mary came up with this idea. Let's name him Joseph. Didn't you have an uncle once? I'm sorry, Jesus. Didn't you have an uncle once that was Jesus? You know, he seemed pretty cool. Let's name him after No, it was the angel who came to Joseph, the angel who came to Mary, and said, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so Jesus is significant, the fact that that's his name. Jesus Christ, Mark writes. Now, we tend to think of Christ as his last name, like Jesus' first name, Christ's last name, but it's actually a title. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The Greek word Christ translates the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. The Old Testament expectation was for a royal Messiah, a Savior who would come, who would sit on David's throne and would restore the kingdom of Israel and would cast out the oppressors and the invaders. So that was the expectation that people had. Jesus did come as a royal Messiah, but not in the way that people expected. Jesus was the anointed one, but he didn't do the things that they were looking to him to do. 
And then Son of God. And this idea of Son of God, that again, reflects an Old Testament expectation that this royal Messiah, this king who was coming, would have such a close relationship with God that it would be as if he was God's own son. And of course, Jesus is God's own son. He is the Son of God. Eight times in the book of Mark, he's referred to that way as the Son of God. Jesus, in a way, was defined by his sonship. He's always saying things like, I'm here to do the will of the Father. The question I want to ask you to kind of sum up this first point is this. Who is Jesus to you? You see, we often want to take Jesus and cast him into a mold that we have set for him. Often, a mold or an idea or a worker who is given to achieve whatever it is our hearts truly desire. So if my heart's desire is for approval, the approval of man, and that finds expression in all kinds of different ways, whether it's through preaching or being a pastor or being a father or being a husband or whatever the case may be, my idea of Jesus can be, well, Jesus exists, Jesus came so that I can achieve these things and receive the praise of man. Surely Jesus would never want me to fail, and when I'm thinking that way, I've put Jesus into a box, I'm trying to cast him in a mold that doesn't rise to the level of who he really is. If security is my greatest good, if what I want more than anything is just to be safe, then the Jesus that I love and worship would never, ever, ever put me in a place where I feel like I'm at risk. And you can go on and on and on when you think about things like a an inordinate desire for power or an inordinate desire for control or an inordinate desire for success. I mean, all these things that we kind of our deep idols that we treasure, that we want more than anything else in our lives, and we'll look to people and things in order to get, we'll bring Jesus into the equation and say, you know, you exist so that I can have that. And Mark reminds us right from the very beginning of his gospel, no, Jesus, Jesus is the one who came to save his people from their sins. He's the Christ. He's the royal Messiah. He's the king. He's the anointed one. He's the very son of God. We can't cast Jesus into a mold. He is who he is. In fact, at one place, he said, I am the I am, (laughs) saying things that clearly revealed he understood that he is God. You know, the early church was first, uh, one of the first symbols that the early church used, early Christians before the cross, was the fish, right? The ichthus. And you see, you might have them on the back of your car, and that's fine. It's kind of become a little bit of a, well, maybe lost some of the significance of what it meant early on. Uh, why a fish? Well, the Greek word for fish was ichthus. And the early Christians recognized that every one of the Greek letters in the word ichthus correspond with the identity of Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus is Jesus. He is Jesus. Jesus is Christos. He is Christ. And so that kind of an I, Yoda, not Yoda, Y-O-D-A, but Yota, that, that letter that begins ichthus, right, corresponds with the first letter to Jesus' name. The next letter in the word ichthus corresponds with the C-H in Christ, Christos. The theta that comes next corresponds with theos, God. You know, the, word, the, the word that comes next is the word huios, son. The final 
word that corresponds with the final letter to ichthos is soter, savior. So what that fish meant was Jesus Christ, son of God, savior. And the stories are told of these early Christians who were beginning to experience persecution around the same time that Mark wrote in the Roman Empire, especially when Nero was on the throne and, and things were beginning to really blow up. The, the story is that, you know, as you came across someone, if you wanted to get a sense of whether they were a believer or not, they might, in the sand, draw the fish, right? Little ichthus. And if the person you were, you know, coming up to in the road wasn't a Christian, they would be like, great art, like, good job. Are you hungry? Is that why you're drawing that fish there? I mean, what? But if it was a believer, they would be like, yeah, here's a brother, here's a sister. Of course, eventually the Roman Empire would understand what that ichthus meant, and eventually it would lead to persecution and imprisonment and ultimately death for those who drew it. But my point is this, they drew it. They didn't have a concept of Jesus who came to make their life easier. They understood who Jesus was. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. He is the one I will worship. He is the one with whom I will identify no matter what the cost is. So the next time you get a dirty look from somebody blowing by because you've got the ichthus on the back of your car, recognize you stand in a long line of believers who have received that and worse. Jesus' identity. He is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. All right, let's talk about his mission. Oh, verses 2 and 3 are so exciting. I really hope that you will leave this sermon with this idea, with this, just like, that is so cool. All right, so let's look at it. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What's going on here? It is more than just, yeah, we expected John the Baptist to come and wear the funny clothes he was wearing and say the things that he said. There's more than that going on here. So Mark is quoting actually from uh, three different verses. He's quoting from Exodus 23.20. He's quoting from Malachi 3.1, and he is quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And so that first line, behold, I send my messenger before your face, that's just from Exodus 23, significantly linking it to the time when God's people were in the Exodus, in the wilderness, okay? So it's placing God's people at that time in that place. There's an analogy, there's a metaphor that Paul's setting up here, new Exodus, original Exodus, so that's Exodus 23. And then Malachi 3.1, who will prepare your way? Well, that is directly drawn from Malachi 3.1. Malachi 4.6 tells us who that messenger is, that it's Elijah. Jesus is going to come around later in his ministry and say concerning John the Baptist, who did you see when you went out there? It's Elijah. Not Elijah reincarnate, but the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. And then Isaiah 40, verse 3. I'm sorry, uh, uh, let me come back. Uh, Mark 1, 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, which is from Isaiah 40, verse 3, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. So you put these things together. You have this reference to the original Exodus, God leading his people out of Egypt through the wilderness, the place of testing, the place of failure, the place of need, 
the place of intimacy with God, to the promised land. You have this anticipation that there is a messenger who will come when the Messiah comes, this one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, who is John the Baptist. But you also have this promise that he is preparing the way for the one who is to come. Now, in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40 is all about God coming to lead his people on another exodus. Now, in Isaiah, the, the, the way that people looked at that, what people were expecting, again, was for God to come as Savior to lead his people out of some political oppressive situation. So, in Isaiah, it was out of Babylon, out of the exile, back into the promised land. So God is going to come. He's going to lead his people on a new exodus. What's happening here in the first few verses of Mark is Mark is saying, listen, that's what he came to do. This is what Jesus came to do. In the same way that God led his people out of captivity in Egypt and led them through the wilderness to the promised land, and in the same way that Isaiah pointed to the coming of the king, God himself, who would lead his people out of exile into the promised land on a new exodus from the wilderness leading the way, Mark is saying, that's Jesus. He is God come to lead a new exodus to lead people out of their captivity, to lead them along the way, to lead them not to a promised land that is a geographical slice of the earth, but is the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, God's presence forever where there's no, no tear, no sin, all's wiped away. That is the exodus that Jesus came to lead. It's the one to which Isaiah was ultimately pointing. When you go back and look at Isaiah, let me just read a couple of verses. Isaiah chapter 2, and these are going to sound familiar, but understand this is Isaiah using their concepts and their language to give a picture of what is to come. So Isaiah chapter 2, we read this, verses 1 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. It's giving a picture of this great and glorious day that is to come. Isaiah is, it, listen, so often in the Bible, whether it's Mark or whether it's Isaiah or any of the other prophets, whenever they say something right, they're saying something that's more right than they know. And that's what's happening here with Isaiah. He's looking to the fulfillment of the promise this covenant-keeping God is going to come back and rescue his people and renew all things and give to them this earth over which he rules and righteousness dwells. Isaiah is looking to that day. Mark is saying, he's here. He's here. Isaiah also gives this vision of that day in Isaiah chapter 11 uh, where he writes, 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Again, using language, agrarian type, farming type language that they could understand, the, the wonder of what he was saying, that maybe we don't. I want to read a quote from a book that is, the title is The Symphony of Mission. It's written by Michael Goheen and Jim Mullins. I mean, it's January, and I try to read like 30 books a year, but I'm pretty sure this is going to be my favorite book of the year already. He, he, he writes this, and I think Jim Mullins is actually doing most of the writing. But anyway, he writes this. What will we experience when God renews and restores all things? How would Isaiah, if he were with us now, word it so that we could capture the vision of what it will mean for all things to be renewed and restored? And he uses this language. Isaiah might say this. Strip clubs would be repurposed into museums that celebrate the dignity of women. Healthy, refreshing water would flow from the perfect pipes of Flint, Michigan. Aleppo, Syria would be the ultimate vacation destination, so safe that people would nap in the streets. Again, we know the vision, we know what that's like now. If Isaiah were, were giving us this vision of the life that is to come, he would say, this is what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. Prisons would be repurposed into first-class elementary schools. Every afternoon, we would gather around to watch a slam dunk contest among people who used to be in wheelchairs. We would take classes from those who retain the gifts of autism, but no longer suffer from its pain and frustration. And Jim Mullins writes from experience, his daughter has autism. Here's one for us that this time of year we may appreciate. The purpose of the IRS would be to explain in great detail all the blessings you have in life. I want that IRS. And we want that kingdom. We want that vision. And Isaiah is saying that is the life that is to come. That is the way that you are on if you're a Christian. Your king, Jesus, has come to lead you out of the wilderness there, there, to that kind of a place where that kind of righteousness and beauty dwells, where things are finally the way they are supposed to be. And sin and evil and death are no more. So Mark's telling us about that Jesus in these first three, chap first three verses of Mark chapter 1. But the rest of the book is going to, again, this is so awesome. The rest of the book is going to unpack how Jesus is not the Messiah that everybody expected him to be. Isaiah chapter 40 Isaiah chapter 40 takes place in book 2 of Isaiah, which starts in Isaiah chapter 39 and ends in Isaiah chapter 55. It is known as the book of the suffering servant. And the rest of Mark, from 831 through the end of the letter, are going to tell us, and Jesus is actually going to say three times, I came to die, I came to die, I came to suffer, and I came to die, and I came to rise. Mark 10:45, the Son of Man did not come to serve, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the rest of Mark, I mean, this gospel that, listen, you know, when, do you read Mark so quickly and be like, yeah, I've been there, done that, I've read this a thousand times? Appreciate the Old Testament roots into which it sinks, this, 
king who has come and is leading his people out, the king who is the royal Messiah, but the king who is the suffering servant as well. Jesus comes to bring a new exodus. Listen, we tend to think too little of the gospel. We don't capture the beauty. Or we tend to think of the gospel as mainly being about the past when it's actually mainly about the future. We think of the gospel as mainly about me being forgiven, and it is that, gloriously so. But the gospel is mainly about the future, the future that's been ushered in with the coming of Christ and the future that will be consummated and fulfilled when Christ returns. The gospel is not about where we've been ultimately. It's about where we're headed. So, third point. I'll make this one quicker. Calling. How should we respond? Let's look at John. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I am not going to get into what the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins was, except to say this, it was unique. It was not the same thing as the proselytite baptisms for Gentiles who converted to Judaism for two reasons. One, that proselytite baptism was done by the proselytite. In other words, you went in and you baptized yourself and you got up and walked away. And John's doing it here. The other more important reason is there's actually no evidence that it took place in the first century even, and this is happening in the first century. So whatever it is, it has Judaism in view in some way, but it's entirely unique. Enough said. All right, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. Now, that's important because in, I think, 2 Kings, we read that, this Elijah, that Elijah, the actual Elijah, wore uh, a leather belt and he wore a coat of hair, I think is how it would actually be translated in that passage. But then it goes on, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And that's not as weird as it actually sounds, because that was common fare for people who were living off the land in that day. And then it goes on, and he preached, saying, After me who com comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So he, you know, humble. He recognized his place relative to Jesus Christ. He was just his messenger. But even John didn't have everything right concerning Jesus, because there's going to come a point in Luke where we read that John was saying, even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. In other words, the Messiah is here, and he's come to judge. And what he didn't realize was the Messiah has come to offer grace, and the judgment would come later. So, so John, the Baptist, he's a type of Elijah. He's come to prepare the way. How? By calling people to repentance. John isn't preparing a literal road. He's preparing a road into the hearts of people for the Messiah by calling them to confess their sins and give a visible public sign of their repentance by being baptized. He's calling people out to the wilderness, which is significant. I mentioned before that the wilderness represented uh, suffering. The, the Greek word just literally means the desolate place. It represented hardship. It represented um, sin. It represented rebellion. But it also represented the place where God and Hosea called people out for comfort and for fellowship. 
So why does John call his people into the wilderness so that they can see that spiritually speaking, that's where they already are? It serves as a metaphor. They might have wished that he was standing outside the temple, but John was in the wilderness. Why? So they could see where they were in their hearts already. So my question to you is, have you responded to that same call? Do you recognize that, spiritually speaking, have you come to that place of recognizing that you are in the wilderness? That is a good thing to recognize because when you do, you realize that's the place God meets us. So if you have, and you're now a follower of Christ who is the way, praise God. If you're not, and you're here, and you feel that sense of desolation in your heart, praise God. Turn to Jesus now. Follow him. But if, you feel, if you're here right now and you feel neither that sense of desolation nor that sense of following Jesus and feel instead like everything is fine, I don't know you by name, but I'm praying that as John called people out of the Judean countryside and out of Jerusalem into the wilderness so they could be reminded in the starkest possible way where they were in their hearts, that something will happen in your life to to help you recognize that you are in a place of desolation in your interior world. But that is the place where God meets us. Have you responded to the call? And then finally, let me end with this. Are you living as a person of the way? This comes back to the idea of the gospel being more than just about the past. It's about the future. You know, the early church was referred to, before they were called Christians, they were called people of the way. You read about it in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, it says that Paul went out. This is Paul, Saul, persecutor of the church, went out looking for any who belonged to the way. In Acts chapter 19, verse 9, it says that people were speaking evil of the way. In Acts chapter 19, verse 23, in Ephesus, Paul tells us there was no little disturbance concerning the way. And in Acts chapter 24, Paul says, you know, people are referring to us Christians as the way. What does it mean to be a person of the way? Well, it is not the Mandalorian sense of the way, right? Some of you, like if you're under, I don't know, 25, you know what I'm talking about. The Mandalorian, right? This is the way. Meaning, for the Mandalorian race, this is kind of our moral code by which we live, and we need to stick to it. That is not the way. I mean, Jesus does have an ethic that we're called to follow and emulate, but that is not the way, ultimately, that it means to be a Christian. It is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who comes into us, or comes to us, in our spiritual wilderness, in our spiritual exile, being cut off from God, and makes a way through faith in Him out into that glorious future that is to come. That's what it means to be a person on the way, or a person of the way. And so my prayer as we look at Mark is really a couple of things. 
first and foremost, that we will see Jesus for who he is. That we'll see him for who he is. That, that any ideas of a domesticated Christ or a Christ that we've somehow been able to just take the parts of him that help us achieve the kind of life we want instead of taking the all of him that really disrupts us, I pray that that'll go away. And that we'll know that Jesus, who invades our interior world, to give us new life and a way out of the wilderness. And then the second prayer is that we'll be people of the way, that we'll be people who are not living simply on gratitude for things that God has done for us in the past in Jesus to forgive us for our sin, as awesome as that is, but that we will instead be people who are so shaped by and captured by this vision of the future that has come with Jesus, a vision that's rooted in the Old Testament in places like Isaiah and Exodus and Ezekiel and all these other passages in the Bible that point to ultimately the fulfillment of this one great rescue mission that Jesus is on to save his people. So it may be that as we work our way through Mark, his identity, Jesus' identity is clear. His mission is clear. And we respond with faith as people on the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask now that as we uh, move on from here into the rest of our week and, and ultimately into the, the daily lives of work, whatever that work may look like, um, I pray that you would help us to be people who are realizing that as Christians, all things are new. Lord, these people who went into the wilderness and confessed their sins and received the baptism of repentance, they went back as changed people. They went back to their normal everyday lives, but they went back realizing that everything was now different. And I pray that we'll be people who live that way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.